I'm a political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of the Mary Trump show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. They understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. So I'll be honest, we plan a lot of these discussions in advance, and this session was originally meant to focus on how to reboot America's China policy. And we were going to have that discussion with Congressman Andy Kim, who serves on the Select China Committee in Congress. He and I ended up taping a big part of that conversation, and we will air some of it here. But we're going to save most of it for another seasonal podcast I host called Global Reboot. What I do want to share with you in full on this episode, however, is about more immediate news. Israel has ordered an evacuation of 1.1 million Gazans from the north of the Gaza Strip to the south. This is a move that is causing immense upheaval in Gaza, and it comes as the people living there already have lost access to electricity and a major humanitarian catastrophe is underway. All of this, of course, comes after a horrific attack on Israel perpetrated by the Islamist militant group Hamas on Saturday, October 7. Stories continue to emerge of just unspeakable brutality, and there are still about 150 mostly Israeli hostages being held by Hamas somewhere in Gaza. Amid all of this, Washington is broken. As of this recording on Friday, October 13, there is still no speaker in the House, and so one wing of Congress can do very little to aid America's response. I put all of that to Representative Andy Kim. In the past, he worked at the State Department and at the National Security Council, and he has considerable experience in the Middle East. Remember, you can watch these interviews live and on video on our website foreignpolicy.com slash live. And if you use the code FPLIVE, you can get a nice discount when you check out. Let's dive in. Congressman Kim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with the Middle East. I should point out for our viewers today, you know the Middle East. You've worked in the State Department and on the National Security Council. So I just want to give you a chance first to comment on Hamas's brutality last weekend. Yeah, look, uh, you're right. I've worked on these issues for a long time. You know, I, I served as a civilian out in Afghanistan at the height of the war. I've worked out in Iraq and elsewhere. And uh, still, after having seen all that and, and the war against ISIS, I was still stunned and and shocked by what I had seen, uh, the, the brutality with which it happened, the indiscriminate targeting of civilians. I mean, the you know, that music festival, I mean, the stories come out of there were just uh, just some of the worst that I had heard. So it was gripping and shocking for even those of us that have, have seen a lot. And sometimes it feels like you work on these for so long that you might grow kind of numb to the violence and numb to the numbers. But, 
you know, this one definitely, you know, ripped, ripped that all off. Um, it was, it was, it was tough. You know, we know there's a lot of confusion about what comes next, but the one thing we know, uh, especially for those of us who worked in the region is that it's going to take a long time. And that this is something where we're going to have to think about how do we not just act, but sustain our action, even when this is not the front page news or the headlines every single day. And that's what I worry about a lot. Having now been in Congress for four and a half years, I see how reactionary this building is. I see how much of a short attention span this building has. You know, those are the things that are on my mind when I think about where we're at right now. Yeah. And I'm glad you're reflecting on just how barbaric and brutal uh, these attacks have been. Um, I've been a foreign correspondent for many years. Um, and uh, truly, it is worth reminding our viewers and listeners today just how shocking the atrocities were. How much of that do you think is an intelligence failure? I mean, the Israelis are pretty much openly admitting now at this point that this was an intel failure on their part. But on the American side, do you think that America, too, has some culpability in not seeing any of this? Uh, look, I, I definitely think that's something we need to dive into. I mean, it's definitely alarming to me that something of this magnitude uh, that requires the, the complexity of the attack in terms of the multiple vectors with which it was uh, conducted, uh, the idea that 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 we didn't have the this level of fidelity of that going forward, it worries me uh, tremendously. And it's a stark contrast to what we saw when it came to Ukraine, where we did have uh, a lot of information about buildup and we could anticipate and actually get ahead of it and try to message it. So it worries me about sort of where resources are going. Um, certainly from the Israeli side, as you said, you know, that's something they're very aware of, not just in the Intel side, but there are very significant security fortifications that are occurring on that border. So it's not just about the Intel, but how did uh, the penetration occur so uh, successfully uh, for Hamas to get across a, a place that is one of the most fortified areas in the entire world. Um, so there's a defense and an intel component of that that I'm, I'm sure the Israeli people will demand answers for. Um, and we as the, as the strongest security partner uh, to Israel also need to have those answers too. And by land, sea and air as well. You know, so Israel has demanded in response that 1.1 million Gazans evacuate the north of the Strip. That is almost half of the entire population of Gaza. Already, there have been uh, attacks on Gaza. Upwards of 500 children uh, have died so far. As Israel's siege of Gaza expands, how concerned are you about what is clearly now an unfolding humanitarian crisis there? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it was certainly, a, you know, it's been a humanitarian crisis. We've, you know, we've seen how how challenged uh, the the just day-to-day -day life has been on, on Gaza. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, this is going to get, um, this is going to get really tough going forward. There's going to be a lot more violence, a lot more challenges ahead. And that principle about civilian protection and especially when it comes to, you know, the, the children is, is some of the, of the images and the stories that have been most gripping, both in terms of on the Israel side, as well as in Gaza, uh, that needs to be very much at, at the front of everyone's minds across the entire battle space there. And that's, you know, I, I've been reflecting on this and actually talking to some of my colleagues that worked over the last 20 years in some capacity uh, in national security on the war and terror, whether in uniform or a civilian like myself, and we've been actually like reflecting, like, what are some of the lessons learned about, you know, what 
about what these kind of situations are like, you know, and how we talked about it. it was so important that we show that sense of attention to preventing civilian casualties, because that was what undermined so much of the legitimacy of what the United States was trying to do in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it just it muddied up and, 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 and prevented a lot of the, the people of the countries that we're in from understanding what we're doing. It gave legitimacy to some of the grievances and the propaganda of organizations like the Shia militia groups or, uh, or ISIS or, or others and uh, the Taliban and others. So it, it's important not just what you do, but how you go about doing it. And, so and Congressman, I, I, really... I mean, you're you're talking about the war on terror here, which was in response to 9-11 for the better part of two decades. There are many commentators who are calling uh, Saturday's attacks Israel's 9-11. Are you then saying that they shouldn't be doing that? Well, I'm saying that they need to be very mindful. Everyone needs to be very mindful about what comes next. I want the United States to be mindful about what options we're considering and to take into account the lessons learned of what we went through. And, you know, this is not just about Israel. It's about how we engage when we talk about Ukraine or when we talk about, uh, you know, support to Taiwan and elsewhere. We have to be thinking and learning lessons about the good and the bad of what worked in terms of our engagements with partners on the ground, what kind of support that we provide, um, and that what we would encourage our partners to do to act in a way that certainly is there for their defense, that Israel has every right to defend itself, but to try to advise and, and to engage with them in a way that can hopefully lead to the most uh, successful outcome, rather than just create another era and, and generation of uh, cycles of violence, which is you know what we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq for the work that we did. So look, I, I don't have all the answers. Uh, you know, I come with this with a lot of humility of, of seeing you know just so many failed strategies uh, in our in our wars over the last two decades. Uh, but I, I do hope that we try to reflect on that and bring some of those lessons learned back in. Yeah, I appreciate the humility. Um, President Biden, when he spoke for a second time uh, addressing the world about last weekend's atrocities, he showed great emotion, uh, which is really important, uh, and empathy. But he did not call for restraint uh, on Israel's part. Do you think he should have? Well, I think what we should do is, and and I feel like I've heard the the, the administration say this, and I know the Secretary of State said it, which is, you know, we are... Uh, democracies and democracies need to be countries that follow the rule of law and that that is something that we have to hold ourselves to that kind of value and show how we are different, show how we act in a certain way in accordance with that. And so, yes, you know, I, I do think we need to be making uh, those types of statements and saying like we we need we absolutely uh, are going to support, uh, you know, Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, but we are certainly urging, whether it's it's Ukraine or, or Israel or any of our partners, uh, to think about how they go about doing that, to work with us in that, and, and try to do so in a way uh, that is, again, not going to undermine the legitimacy and undermine the uh, intentions of what we're trying to do. Um, and you know, being able to do that in alignment with the rule of law is the best way to go about doing it. So let me give you a specific example. I mean, Human Rights Watch is criticizing Israel for using white phosphorus uh, in Gaza. 
Um, white phosphorus, of course, uh, is a substance that you know burns people's skins on contact. It it can instantly kill people. Uh, there's organ failure linked to that. Uh, it is essentially seen as a war crime to use it. How do you think the United States uh, should uh, respond to an allegation like that from Human Rights Watch? Yeah, well, look, we absolutely need to know, you know, for certain what happened, if the use is there to engage and understand, you know, why was that, why was that done? Um, if it is in fact the case, because you're right, I mean, I would be alarmed by that. I'd be worried about that. Um, and I certainly want to get answered myself to, to what's going on. Uh, we've seen a tremendous number of munitions used, you know, thousands used already. I mean, I think there have been comparisons saying that that's, you know, more than the, you know, the totality of what we used over the course of months or years sometimes in different conflicts we've fought. How do we understand how that targeting is happening, especially with now the, the call being for evacuation of, of, you know, northern Gaza, as you mentioned earlier, you know, how is that kind of targeting happening? How, what kind of confidence do we have in terms of who's there? Um, you know, that, that is something that needs to be done with uh, precision um, as much as humanly possible. So, you know, that is something that I hope that our militaries are having those very serious conversations. And that's certainly something that as a member of the Armed Services Committee, I'm urging our military to push forward on. So, you know, this is an ongoing war in the Middle East. Uh, there is, of course, another war going on in Europe, uh, which uh, America has an important role to play in. And meanwhile, there is no speaker in the House. How is that impacting Congress's ability to mobilize U.S. support? Yeah, well, look, uh, it's it'd be a huge problem for our country, no matter what was happening in the world. You know, to, to be in a situation where we do not have a functioning United States Congress uh, is absurd. You know, I've been here at the United States Capitol uh, all week. I have not done a single vote. You know, we've just been uh, just trying to you know figure out what in the world is going on. Um, you know, we're just not able to function right now, not able to do the work that we need to. There's so much busy, uh, you know, congressional committee work and armed services work, other things like that that we need to do that we just cannot do because we're paralyzed right now. So yes, we should move forward with a joint resolution uh, condemning the attack. We should have done that immediately. Uh, you know, the Senate's coming back next week. I hope they uh, confirm Jack Lew and other ambassadors that they can move forward with military leaders. We have to show that we are operating at full capacity, full strength. And right now, we're not able to do that. Thankfully, you know, uh, the administration has said that they have a, enough runway with existing authorities and resources to be able to provide some initial immediate support to Israel. But they all say more is going to be needed. Um, so I, I hope we get our act together as, as soon as possible. The other aspect of this, and you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in, in other contexts too, but what kind of signal does this send to the rest of the world? You know, when we're in this kind of situation right now where we have a war in Europe, a war in the Middle East, challenges around the world, tensions in the Indo-Pacific, and the United States is unable to elect a Speaker of the House and just constantly showing in the full view of the rest of the world and the American public, just how dysfunctional things are right now. What kind of signal does that send to our adversaries and our competitors? What kind of and signal does that send you to, to our Let me our, ask you to allies? answer that, actually. What, what signal do you think it sends? Uh, well, I, I think it sends a, a terrible signal. I think it sends uh, the kind of message that uh, only further weakens us. You know, we are at a place right now where 
Putin is trying to present this message that the United States is in decline and, and President Xi and others are talking about how democracy doesn't work. And we are just making that argument so easy for them right now, not just about the speaker vote, but you know how we you know we're so on the brink of defaulting on our debt. You know, when we see the the mayhem uh, and chaos of January 6th and the big lie, like how can we present to the rest of the world the sense that you know democracy is the is the shining example of governance? If we ourselves are not able to show the kind of foundation of stability that is needed for this. So that's what I think is so alarming about this situation we're in. And it just brings a deep sadness to me that uh, we are at this kind of place where we see that kind of level of dysfunction affecting us, but also just affecting our global strength uh, across the world. You are sad, and I'm sure the American people are too. The, the White House has expressed interest in a combined aid package uh, that includes assistance to both Israel and Ukraine. Many House Republicans would oppose that. How do you see the results of the current race impacting that? Well, look, uh, you know, look, you're right. Many uh, Republicans would oppose that, but more would support it. I mean, we've had strong bipartisan support. You know, I, I don't want people to judge whether we have support or not for Ukraine based off of just the loudest of voices in opposition. We've taken multiple votes in the House of Representatives, 300 plus members of Congress from the House supportive of, of continued aid and support to Ukraine, strong bipartisan support in the Senate. So it's there. It's just that we have such a short, small majority in the House. And we had a speaker that was pre, you know, former speaker that was willing to capitulate to them and give them undue influence. And so, you know, that's the situation that we're in. But like, I hope Ukraine and Europe and the rest of the world see through that smoke and mirrors of the ridiculousness of a smaller number of members and see that the vast majority of the House of Representatives and the Senate does support Ukraine, does support Israel, does support our efforts to support allies and partners around the world, and doesn't just judge us by those that yell the loudest on cable news. Hmm. I have one last question before we move to China. Um, Senator Bob Menendez's indictment was updated to include acting as a foreign agent for Egypt. What do you make of that? And I should point out, of course, you are now seeking to replace him. Yeah, look, I, I when I first heard that, I mean, this wasn't just about the superseding indictment. You know, a lot of this information was in the original indictment where it talked about uh, him allegedly providing information about pers U.S. personnel at, at an embassy abroad. Um, you know, those types of actions as someone who worked in embassies abroad, worked in the State Department, um, I, I just I, I couldn't believe it. You know, in fact, I, I worked briefly as a as a staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under then Chairman uh, Richard Luger, um, and I have great esteem for that committee, great esteem for the position chairman to the point where I worked for a Republican member uh, because I thought he was a statesman. He was someone that recognized that he was part of something bigger than all of us, mm. and the idea that a chairman, a sitting chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee 
might have taken actions that were not in the best interest of our country or even anywhere close to that. Like you shouldn't, the chairman should never, never be getting anywhere close to the gray lines of, of what is uh, in the interest of the United States or not. Uh, so I don't have confidence uh, as a constituent of his, as a colleague of his from the other side of the Capitol. I don't have confidence in him that he can continue this job. He has every bit as much right for due process uh, and in the legal system, of course. But I do believe that these jobs uh, in Congress, these are jobs whose job description are written in the Constitution of the United States. They require and demand a higher standard, a higher standard of public trust. And I believe that public trust uh, has been eroded. Um, and if he's not going to step down, that's why I decided to step up uh, to run against him in the primary next year. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Congressman, this discussion, as I said, was originally planned as one on rebooting America's China policy. You are on the Select China Committee. So let me begin that part of this discussion by asking you this. What worries you about America's current approach to China? Yeah, look, um, I think there's a lot of attention, of course, on U.S.-China relations and where it's going, and rightfully so. You know, there's a lot out there to be worried about. There are a lot of actions that are being taken uh, by the CCP, a lot of actions of the, of the centralization of power and consolidation of power by President Xi that worries me. A, a lot of uh, different things of that nature. You know, certainly, I think, uh, after what we saw happen in Hong Kong, um, in terms of, again, just the repression there, uh, it worries me tremendously. I think for me, when it comes to how the United States is approaching I am glad that there is increased attention and focus, but I, I don't feel like it's being done in sort of the broader comprehensive way that I would like it to be done. I, I think there's a lot of attention on our military security elements, and look, that's important. Deterrence is critical. And certainly when we're talking about how to maintain the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, you know, that's going to play a central role. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I get it. We're focused on that. But when you look at kind of across the board of these questions of, well, what kind of strategic competition is this? What form does it take? And how is the United States faring in this? How do we match up? You know, I feel like we're not looking at some of those broader questions. And if we do so, I think we would come to see that a lot of what we focus on isn't just about what China is doing and how we slow them down or how we try to deter but also about how we strengthen ourselves, how we you know, build stronger coalitions, how we invest in our own self. You know, if you think about it as, let, let's say it's a race, you know, yes, you can spend uh, important time thinking about how to slow your competitor down in a race, and, but you also have to invest in your own agility and your own strength. 
And, and that's where I feel like there has not been the kind of adequate level of attention. And there are some sticking point issues that prevent this from really being brought up in the way that I would like to see it brought up in different forms uh, in Capitol Hill and throughout the government. So I'm going to push you on that just a little bit. So in essence, you're saying that America's problem in the way in which it's dealing with China is that it is focused more on slowing China down, constraining China, and less on boosting itself. If that is the case, what aspect of not boosting itself uh, is the White House currently unable uh, to give enough attention to? Yeah, well, look, um, what I'll say is, again, that I think both are necessary, you know, like, so it's, it's not one or the other. It's not that we, you know, like we should be thinking about, you know, deterrence. We should be thinking about, you know, concerns of what China is doing. That's fine. But look, I will say, I, I do feel like the Biden administration actually does understand this in some ways better than I feel like some of the conversations on Capitol Hill have been, you know, the Biden administration has been engaged in efforts um, about, building coalitions, for instance, which I think is so critical to the need of this. And, you know, especially building these coalitions across the Indo-Pacific. And I think when you think about that as a major priority and pillar to a strategy, you see why it's important not just to talk about the, the military and security angle. You know, when I was out in Malaysia, they were happy to talk to me about security and, and, and challenges when it comes to uh, security military issues, but they overwhelmingly wanted to talk to about economic issues and trade and, and direct investment and, and other ways in which we can help. There's a hunger for a broader set of conversations and tools. And when we come to them, they even came to me and told me like, like, like all you want to do is talk about, you know, about military deterrence and, and where to place uh, weaponry and et cetera. Um, but you have to listen to what we need and what we want to talk about. I hear that in, in Singapore. I hear that in Korea, Japan, elsewhere, that we have to have a broader horizon because, you know, the way that I've heard from them is like they don't want to be seen or talked about in a way where it just seems like they are just a square on a chessboard between, you know, great power competition you know, we, they want to know that we have interest in them in and of themselves, not just in terms of their usefulness to us on a broader question and strategy about China. And that sense of respect that is necessary is important. And, and we have to choose our words and our phrases carefully to send the right signals to them that we understand the challenging situation that they're in. So, Congressman, it strikes me, I mean, obviously, we're talking about rebooting U.S.-China policy, but it also strikes me that you're you're describing a wider reboot of how America engages with the world, period. Yeah. It look, describes foreign policy. Yeah, that's right. Because what, what I think about here is about how I believe we're in this new era of global politics. You know, we're firmly no longer in the post 9-11 world. We're in this new era. We don't fully know what this new era will bring, but we know that, you know, this is just, you know, we've seen these paradigm shifts in the past, the end of the Cold War, the 9-11 uh, terrorist attack. So we're in a new era. We rightfully believe that a big part of this new era is going to involve some semblance of great power competition, but, you know, it's still taking shape. So... That's what I think about. And when I think about a new era, and I've, you know, as I've studied this over the course of my career, a lot of it is this question of what 
hard what, what what will this era look like when things start to harden you know the, the beginning of these new eras are often very fluid you know we see this with decolonization and the fluidity and the wars that broke out we saw it after the end of the cold war and the, and the emergence of a lot of security challenges and threats in europe and elsewhere we see that right now now the question is where does it start to harden and the sense is like how do we have it harden in a way that is most beneficial to the United States? So you're right. I, I don't necessarily think about it as just U.S. versus China. In fact, I think that we are weaker if we think about it in that capacity because we are not then leveraging some of our strongest uh, value adds and our strongest um, like competitive advantages. I guess I would say like we can build coalitions internationally and globally much better than China can. So if this is seen as just solely U.S. versus China, you know, given how, how large their population is, how large their market is, like we will struggle to compete in certain types of numerical metrics. But if we think about force multipliers, coalition building, you know, things like that, that can be our competitive advantage, you know, that can be it. So you're right. I, I do think about this as sort of this new era of American foreign policy and that we need a broader strategy, not just a China strategy, but a... Indo-Pacific strategy and a broader strategy of what American global leadership and coalition building looks like in this era. And that was Congressman Andy Kim. As I mentioned at the start, you can hear a lot more of our conversation on China and how to reboot U.S. policy on China on my other podcast, Global Reboot. Season three of that show launches later this month. Next week on FP Live, I'm going to speak with retired General David Petraeus. We had originally planned to discuss the war in Ukraine. We will, of course, also now discuss the Middle East. Petraeus is also a former director of the CIA. You will want to hear what he has to say. That is it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. 
To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 